In 2018, California voters banned the sale of pork unless it's been raised under certain conditions. Naturally, a group of pork producers sued. When defending the law, the state argued that its restrictions protect health and safety. In response, the pork producers argued that the law might actually worsen health and safety. And since most pork sold in this country is raised outside of California, they also argued the state was trying to dictate business practices in other states in violation of the so-called Dormant Commerce Clause. The case is being heard this term by the Supreme Court. Some think the court will strike the California law down. Others wonder, based on recent dissents, whether the justices might use this opportunity to write the Dormant Commerce Clause out of the Constitution altogether. I'm Anastasia Bowden. And I'm Elizabeth Slattery. This week on DIST, we're taking on Tennessee Wine Retailers and Spirits Association versus Thomas. The court's decision is indefensible. I respectfully dissent. Because the majority in this case has not done what a court of law must do, I respectfully dissent. For these reasons and others elaborated in my opinion, I respectfully dissent. We respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I dissent. And whiskey and wine, cantaloupes, apples, oysters, and swine. Thanks to free trade, we get all sorts of things. But we'll see what next Supreme Court term brings. Let's take it back, way back, to the 1780s. Just a few years after the Revolutionary War, the states were tearing each other apart. They were engaging in trade wars, <laughs> taxing each other's goods. I tax thee. Closing their ports and pursuing their own economic interests at the expense of each other, creating hostility and escalating retaliation. Many worried that our fledgling country and its economy was on the verge of collapse. Under the Articles of Confederation, which were adopted in 1777, the Confederation lacked power to tackle trade problems, international or domestic. There was simply nothing the Continental Congress could do. James Madison called out these laws in his Vices of the Political System of the United States, where he said that the states were acting adverse to the spirit of the Union and tending to beget retaliating regulations that were destructive of the general harmony. In Federalist 22, Alexander Hamilton similarly wrote that unneighborly regulations had given just cause of umbrage and complaint to others. He feared that if these laws were not restrained by a national control, they would only multiply. Yes, dear listeners, our founders were distressed, and we know just the guy to tell us about it. I'm Barry Friedman, and I'm a law professor at New York University School of Law. Back in the 1780s, war was over. We were trading with the British. The British were imposing all kinds of trade restrictions on us. The Confederacy couldn't respond because it couldn't do anything without all the states signing on. And Rhode Island in particular was always a problem. So New York decided they were just going to impose some tariffs on the British ships, tonnage restrict, you know, tonnage duties and things. And so then, you know, Connecticut and New Jersey thought, super, we're going to have free ports and we'll get all the business. So then New New York said, well, now we're going to impose duties on you guys unless you can prove that the goods didn't come from the British. So then I think it was New Jersey taxed the lighthouse at Sandy Hook here in New York and Connecticut barred like all trade with New York for a year. And that was bad. Like that's what caused everybody to go rushing to Annapolis and saying the whole thing's falling apart. And so they came together first in Annapolis and then in Philadelphia and job one 
was keeping the states from passing protectionist laws that were going to lead to balkanization of the country. That is what the whole thing was about. That whole thing that Barry mentioned was the Constitutional Convention. Although the states merely intended to revise the Articles of Confederation, the delegates ended up creating an entirely new constitution and changing our country forever. One provision in this spiffy new constitution was directly intended to address the trade wars of the previous decades. We call it the Interstate Commerce Clause. It gives Congress the power to, quote, regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. Although on its face, this clause simply grants Congress the power to regulate commerce, the Supreme Court has interpreted it as also limiting the state's ability to regulate commerce. Under what's called the Dormant or Negative Commerce Clause Doctrine, states can't discriminate against commerce from other states or overly burden interstate trade. To some, this doctrine makes perfect sense given the history of the Constitution. After all, it was intended to put an end to state laws that were destructive to the national economy. It would make no sense if the founders rewrote the entire governing document and didn't put anything in there that limited state action. But to others, the doctrine is entirely made up. Looking at the text, it does nothing other than simply grant more power to Congress. Over the years, cases interpreting the full extent of the Commerce Clause's operations on states have involved every delicious commodity under the sun, including Wisconsin milk. Georgia shrimp and Virginia oysters, though I'm allergic, Washington apples, Arizona cantaloupes, and as we'll discuss later, bacon, one of my favorite things. One case illustrates the debate over the legitimacy of the Dormant Commerce Clause particularly well, and it involves Tennessee wine. In 2019, the Supreme Court heard a case involving three of my favorite things, constitutional protections against cronyism, federalism, and wine. We asked Carter Phillips, a partner at Sidley Austin and counsel for Total Wine in that case, to lay out the facts of the underlying dispute. Tennessee had a a fairly unique scheme for regulating uh, the distribution of alcohol within its state. It had a decided preference for in-state wholesalers and retailers and uh, basically adopted a residency requirement, unlike what you might normally expect a couple months or maybe six months. Instead, it had a it had a two-year residency requirement at the outset, which not only applied to individuals, but, but also applied to every officer, shareholder, or anyone else in connection with a corporation, which would obviously have the effect of excluding every national corporation because the idea that you would have all of your shareholders resident in Tennessee is pretty improbable. But the but the subsequent feature of the scheme was even more interesting in some ways because um, you had to file for renewal within one year, right? So you've waited two years, you re- file for renewal, but you had to have a residency of 10 years prior to the renewal, which meant that in effect, you had to have been sitting around, I suppose, for nine years and then get your one year in and then and then you're in a position to renew. Obviously, no out-of-state retailer would operate in that environment. This would seem an obvious violation of the Dormant Commerce Clause doctrine, since it discriminates against retailers from out-of-state. And indeed, the Tennessee Attorney General refused to defend the constitutionality of the residency requirement as written by the state legislature. He twice declared it unconstitutional and as a consequence refused to enforce the residency requirement. 
After the attorney general refused to enforce the law, Total Wine, which is a Bethesda, Maryland-based company, and another business were able to get a retail license without having to comply with the residency requirement. But then a trade association sued the board for failing to enforce the law as written. And the board threw up its hand and said, well, what do we know? We, you know? We're doomed if we do and doomed if we don't, basically. So it was the Wine Retail Association of Tennessee that ultimately defended the law. And so that's how you end up with this strange litigation with the retail association as a party on one side and the retailer on the other side. But the optics of that tell you, frankly, everything you need to know about what this case is really about from the state of Tennessee's perspective. That is, it's not about health or safety. The state didn't even want to enforce the law. It was all about protecting in-state businesses from out-of-state competition. But the retailers couldn't just admit that. They had to defend the law on some health or safety basis. So what did they argue? Well, for the residency requirement itself, I guess the argument is that if you have more time within the state, the state will have a better evidentiary basis for concluding that you are the kind of person who should be selling alcohol on a retail basis. I mean, that's the that's the putative explanation. It's hard to justify the jerry-rigged residency scheme that Tennessee put in place to accomplish that on its face. It seems to be strictly a protectionist measure. And there's almost no industry as heavily regulated as the alcohol industry. So, you know, for a company like Total Wine, which operates in, I think, 25, 26 states and, and is an open book in terms of being regulated by those states, uh, it had no problem complying with every other facet of Tennessee's scheme. The only part it couldn't get was everybody to move to Tennessee, I suppose, in order to be able to sell liquor uh, on a retail basis there. It's not even clear how being a resident would necessarily mean that the applicant is more inclined to comply with state law. Well, it, yeah, I mean, <laughs> the disconnect is pretty dramatic as far as if that were, if that's what you wanted to do. There, there are a thousand less restrictive ways of accomplishing that that would be significantly less uh, protective and more uh, protective of in-state interests and more open to interstate commerce. And again, it, it, you know, I get it in some contexts. There may be some retailers who you want to take a hard look at, but the idea that you need two years to do that is very difficult to understand since you can certainly take some period of time after the application to scrub as thoroughly as possible the background of the individual and the company that's seeking the license. And frankly, Tennessee did that. I mean, that's not, there's no question about that. And what was Total Wine's argument that the residency requirement violated the constitution? Let's start with the obvious violation of the Dormant Commerce Clause. Obviously, what you're doing here is excluding all out-of-state sellers of a product from being able to sell inside your state. So if this were diapers or clothes or anything else like that, I don't think anybody would seriously doubt that the Commerce Clause precludes a state from doing, from engaging in that kind of balkanization of the economy. But this case wasn't about diapers or clothes or anything else like that. It was about wine. The Trade Association therefore pointed to the 21st Amendment, which not only ended the national experiment with prohibition, but also put control over liquor regulation into the hands of the states. The 21st Amendment, though, says that the state you know, can control the distribution of, of alcohol within the state. And so the question is, what does that mean? Does that mean that it can engage in discriminatory regulation of the distribution of alcohol, or was that meant to do what I think it clearly was meant to do, which is to say, like, if we want to be a dry state, then 
interstate commerce cannot overcome that and allow uh, out-of-state sellers to, to, to sell either through the three-tiered system or directly to consumers alcohol in our state. But if the state's going to abandon that position, uh, as every state has now, and, and therefore allows uh, at least some alcohol to be distributed within its state, and it cannot adopt a blatantly discriminatory scheme simply because of the powers under the 21st Amendment. Essentially, the court was asked whether the 21st Amendment provides a sort of exception to the dormant commerce clause and allowed states to enact discriminatory laws because it involved alcohol. What did the court say? In a 7-2 opinion, the court ruled that the 21st Amendment did not defeat the Dormant Commerce Clause. Here's Justice Alito reading from the bench. Now, everyone agrees that the state's two-year residency requirement favors the economic interests of in-state residents and citizens over their out-of-state counterparts. And for that reason, the residency requirement implicates the federal Constitution's Commerce Clause which provides that Congress shall have the power to regulate uh, commerce among the several states. Although the clause is framed as a positive grant of power to Congress, this Court has long held that it also prohibits state laws that unduly restrict interstate commerce. This interpretation, which is generally known as the Dormant Commerce Clause, has been the subject of thoughtful criticisms by members of this court in recent years. But the proposition that the Commerce Clause, by its own force, restricts state protectionism has very deep roots that go back as far as Chief Justice Marshall's 1824 decision in Gibbons versus Ogden. And that is not surprising. One of the main reasons for calling the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in 1787 was to remove the trade barriers that had been erected by the states during the Articles of Confederation. And in light of the way the Court has interpreted other provisions of the Constitution that might be used to attack such trade barriers, if we now abandon the Dormant Commerce Clause principle, the result would be a Constitution that would be unrecognizable to those who convened in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787. And we therefore reiterate that the Commerce Clause of its own force prohibits state discrimination against out-of-state economic interests except in narrow circumstances. In this case, there is no question that the residency requirement discriminates against out-of-state interests. And therefore, it would violate the Dormant Commerce Clause if it applied to goods other than alcohol. But because the requirement concerns the sale of alcohol, it is argued that the provision is shielded by Section 2 of the 21st Amendment. What is disputed is just how much leeway Section 2 gives the states. And in particular, does it allow them to restrict alcohol not to protect the welfare of the public, but solely or predominantly for the purpose of giving in-state businesses an advantage over their competition from out-of-state counterparts? We conclude that it does not. As we have said in prior cases, Section 2 basically constitutionalizes the authority that the states had before prohibition, and that did not include a license to enact protectionist laws. 
Once this is recognized, it becomes clear that Tennessee's residency requirement cannot be sustained. The provision discriminates against non-residents and has, at best, a highly attenuated relationship to public health or safety. We conclude that the predominant effect of the residency requirement is to protect the association's members from out-of-state competition, and we therefore hold that the requirement violates the Commerce Clause and is not saved by the 21st Amendment. Justice Gorsuch, joined by Justice Thomas, dissented. Gorsuch wrote, We should not be in the business of imposing our own judge-made dormant Commerce Clause limitations on state power. He described earlier cases of judges enforcing the Dormant Commerce Clause in the context of alcohol as judicial activism and lamented that the majority had dismantled the longstanding judgments of the citizens of Tennessee and dismissed them as protectionist measures. What are lower courts supposed to make of this, he asked. How much public health and safety benefits must there be to overcome the court's worries about protectionism predominating? As judges, he continued, we may be sorely tempted to impose our own free trade rules for all goods and services in interstate commerce. Certainly that temptation seems to have proven nearly irresistible for this court when it comes to alcohol. But like it or not, those who adopted the 21st Amendment took the view that reasonable people can disagree about the costs and benefits of free trade and alcohol. They left us with clear instructions that the free trade rules this court has devised for cabbages and candlesticks should not be applied to alcohol. Under the terms of the compromise they hammered out, the regulation of alcohol wasn't left to the imagination of a committee of nine sitting in Washington, D.C., but to the judgment of the people themselves and their local elected representatives. If the people wish to alter this arrangement, he concluded, that is their sovereign right. But until then, I would enforce the 21st Amendment as they wrote and originally understood it. For purposes of Tennessee wine, Gorsuch's and Thomas's bone to pick with the Dormant Commerce Clause was because the case also implicated alcohol, which they thought sort of provided an exception to the general rule. But let's get real. Both have long been skeptical of the doctrine. Justice Thomas has frequently stated his belief that the Dormant Commerce Clause isn't just cabined by the 21st Amendment. It has no place in our Constitution at all. Here's Barry. There have been justices throughout history who've had doubts about the approach to this particular issue of striking down laws because they're inconsistent with the free flow of commerce. Of late, the more recent justices are Justice Thomas, maybe Justice Gorsuch, and certainly Justice Scalia, um, Justice Rehnquist when he was alive. And so uh, they tend to be conservative justices. They tend to ground their skepticism in the fact that it doesn't say dormant commerce clause in the Constitution. In a case called United Haulers, Justice Thomas went so far as to write that the negative commerce clause has no basis in the Constitution and has proved unworkable in practice. Because this court has no policy role in regulating interstate commerce, I would discard the court's negative commerce clause jurisprudence. Justice Scalia was also a dormant commerce clause skeptic. He once wrote that the so-called negative commerce clause is an unjustified judicial invention not to be expanded beyond its existing domain. Later, he called it a judicial fraud. But unlike Justice Thomas, he wouldn't have tossed the doctrine out altogether, given considerations of stare decisis. So, is the Dormant Commerce Clause bunk? Not according to Barry. When the Constitutional Convention was held, Madison's idea was that when the states passed laws, Congress would review those laws to see if they were consistent with the Constitution. It was called the negative. Congress could negative state laws. And 
that did not move forward in the Constitution. One of the reasons, which I hope we come back to, was because folks thought Congress just couldn't keep up with all the state laws. And so instead, what happened was the convention turned to what ultimately turned into the Supremacy Clause, which says that the judges are entitled to and compelled to strike down anything that's inconsistent with the federal constitution. So that's the principle. And this is the interesting piece. Suppose, if you would, that Congress's power over commerce was exclusive. So the only body that could regulate commerce was Congress. Then if a state regulated commerce, there would be your conflict. Uh, and Justice Thomas, in one of the recent cases, said that the, he referred to this idea of exclusivity as moving from the untenable to the absurd. His point being, that's nuts, the idea that you know Congress had of exclusive power over commerce. After all, states do all kinds of things to regulate commerce, but that's ahistorical. At the beginning of constitutional history, many people did believe that Congress's power over commerce was exclusive, and that if the state regulated commerce, there was your constitutional conflict. Uh, now, I'm going to stop because I've been going on for a while, but I just want to introduce my stopping to say that led to a series of different tests that involved trying to distinguish what was commerce, which Congress could regulate, from something the states could regulate under their police power. But if you think about it, We've gone from a world in which the framers probably thought that the states couldn't regulate commerce to one where we now let them regulate commerce under the more forgiving dormant commerce clause test. In other words, the delegates to the Philadelphia Convention specifically chose to have the courts, rather than Congress, police state measures that conflict with the Constitution. And if the Constitution was meant to delegate all power over interstate commerce to Congress, courts should have a role in invalidating state laws that try to usurp that exclusive power. Given that fact, we actually probably let the states get away with a lot more regulation now under the Dormant Commerce Clause than was even originally intended. What's more, stopping the trade wars was, as Barry put it, That was the whole reason for the Constitution. I mean, what brought everybody together was states engaging in this trade war. And so it would be really weird if the answer was, okay, but courts can't do anything about it. Carter agrees. I have no doubt in my mind that the Dormant Commerce Clause is absolutely critical that in the transition from the Articles of the Confederation to the Constitution, that the framers of the Constitution would have been horrified if they thought that that there was no mechanism by which you could, in fact, prohibit states from engaging in, in essentially barriers to entry into the economy of the state. I mean, there would have been no point in going down that path. Commerce Clause was clearly the method of method designed to achieve it, and even in no, the, toward the end of the 18th century, it was already going to be clear that it was going to be very hard. Congress wasn't going to be able to ferret out every example of protectionism. And that only, and it made much more sense as an institutional matter to allow the courts to deal with that rather than to, rather than to expect that this is simply something that Congress alone can fix. Yet, controversy over the Dormant Commerce Clause continues to rear its head, even this term. In October, the court heard arguments about whether a California law banning the sale of pork, unless it was raised under certain conditions, violates the doctrine. During the argument, some justices, guess who, expressed doubt about the continuing viability of the theory. Here's our colleague, Adi Dinar, who wrote an amicus brief supporting the out-of-state pork producers, describing the case. Uh, the facts are super interesting because California passed a law saying that all of the pork products sold in the state of California have to come from sows, meaning female pigs, that have been housed in a 24 square foot enclosure, not nothing less than 24 square feet. Now, the problem arises because uh, California consumes about 13% of the pork in the United States. 
and 99.87% of the poor comes from out of state. So the effect of this law is felt exclusively, almost exclusively, uh, bearing the 0.13% in all places except California. So that is why it is an important dormant commerce clause or an extraterritoriality or a separation of powers or a federalism case. California and some of these states are arguing that this is simply a law that is regulating something that happens in California, meaning the consumption of pork. Their interests are to protect the health and safety and welfare of the pigs, um, which then would have some sort of a downstream effect on the health and safety of the people of California. And in, in counter to that, the Pork Producers Council is saying, well, but the upstream effects of this is that you're asking all of the manufacturers of consumable pork in the United States to comply with the 24 square foot requirement. And that can't be right because you're micromanaging our industry, you're straight jacketing pork production in the entire country, and one state is unable to do that under the Constitution. At oral argument, Justice Gorsuch raised concerns that, you guessed it, courts shouldn't be engaging in the Dormant Commerce Clause analysis at all. Talking about the Pike Balancing Test, which asks courts to balance a state law's burdens on commerce with its benefits, he asked the counsel for the pork producers. Counsel, um, why, why isn't this Pike Balancing Test um, a, a bit reading too much into too little? Um, it's one paragraph in a short, unanimous opinion, and it relies on three very old cases, Baldwin, Healy, and Brown, they're which are all, well, they're 100 years old, uh, roundabout, um, <laughs> that involve price-fixing or price-affirmation statutes that, in effect, are a form of discrimination against out-of-state market participants. Um, at least that's how many people and many courts have read them. I confess I'm guilty of that, too, on the Tenth Circuit. That was my understanding of what Pike was about. What's wrong with that understanding, especially when the alternative you are selling us appears to be that this court should engage in a freewheeling balancing test, a la Lochner, to protect an economic liberty um, rather than defer to state regulation on health and safety? Oh, no. Gorsuch's casting shade on Lochner? It too, Gorsuch? No one should be afraid of robust judicial review. It's a prerequisite of liberty. What does Lochner mean? Longtime listeners will recall from a previous episode that Lochner versus New York was a case from 1905 where the Supreme Court struck down a law on the theory it violated the constitutional right to earn a living. It's another one of my favorite things, but I digress. Just as Kavanaugh pointed out that even if one thinks the Commerce Clause has been interpreted too broadly, a lot of the limits we currently put on states probably already exist in other parts of the Constitution. But the court has thrown those parts out the window over the years. To the extent we have historically overinterpreted the Commerce Clause, I think you are getting at something that the amicus briefs also point out, is that you couldn't correct that without correcting also a historical under-interpretation, perhaps, of the Export-Import Clause and the Privileges and Immunities Clause. And Justice Thomas and Justice Scalia wrote about the Export-Import Clause, and others have written about the Privileges and Immunities Clause. Correct? Yes. 
later, Justice Kavanaugh said, The point there is the principle behind it is embedded in our Constitution, even if mislabeled. Carter said something similar. You could probably argue, actually, that maybe privileges and immunities might actually have been a, a more logical bucket in which to try to deal with these issues. But the court long ago walked away from it. And that, you know, that's not to say the court couldn't rethink that. But they've certainly, this is a court that rethinks a lot about the Constitution. So I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't cast that aside, but it is, it seems to me less destructive in some ways of, of the existing case law to simply stick with the, with some version of Pike that continues to allow the court to superintend efforts to significantly regulate out-of-state activities or to or to in fact discriminate against out-of-states versus in-states rather than to try to come up with a whole new legal paradigm for dealing with privileges and immunities and what that means and how that applies and how it would apply differently if uh, than 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 the commerce clause now to be sure privileges and immunities is a right so you you know you're enforcing a right that's the that's the strongest argument in favor of trying to work with that as opposed to Commerce Clause, which obviously doesn't create a right. It simply expresses Congress's broad power to ensure against balkanization. But 200 and some years of precedent saying that the court's empowered to enforce that structural scheme, which does in fact protect fundamental rights, at least of an economic nature, it seems well worth keeping in place rather than discarding. And at a minimum, at least you now have a seven to two vote that's pretty recent that says, let's, let's go down that path instead. Dormant Commerce Clause skeptics have to admit, if the pork producers lose, states might start engaging in all sorts of retaliatory measures, trying to block each other's commerce based on their policy decisions, which sounds a lot like the arrangement under the Articles of Confederation that Madison and Hamilton lamented. Justice Kagan made this observation at oral argument. She imagined that, you know, one uh, uh, California can do laws, uh, you have to be pro-labor, and Texas can do laws saying pro-labor union, and Texas can do laws that say you have to be anti-labor union, you know, close shop, open shop. Um, uh, you could you could have states uh, making immigration policy, essentially, through these laws. You could have states doing a wide variety of things through the mechanism of saying, well, unless you comply, you can't sell goods in our market. And, um, you know, we live in a divided country. And uh, the, 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 the balkanization that the framers were concerned about is surely present today. And I think that the, uh, the, 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 the real power of Mr. Needler's examples were, you know, do we want to live in a world where we're constantly at each other's throats? And, um, you know, Texas is at war with California and California at war with Texas. It's important to note that no one not even the pork producers, is saying that Californians shouldn't be free to make their own judgments about which products to buy. The question is whether states should be able to demand that businesses behave a certain way and to prohibit people from choosing what to buy themselves, especially when the law is based on scoring political points rather than protecting health or safety. So what will happen in the National Pork Producers case? Will it spell the end of the Dormant Commerce Clause? Maybe not, but I bet it will lead to one of my favorite things, a dissent. Thanks for listening to DIST. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd appreciate your feedback. So send questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes to dist at pacificlegal.org. 
And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and tell your friends to check out DIST. I just want you guys to know the things that I do for you. I had to drive all the way to the office to get the microphone and then drive home. You're welcome. I brought mine home on Friday. Well, I've been to the office in a week because of COVID. So you couldn't have some gopher bring it to you? Who? No one's in sack anymore. Yeah. Joshua. He sounds like a gopher to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Ready? I'm sore. Okay. <laughs> I should have taken some Sudafed before this. Yeah. I hope I don't get stuffed up. Well, at least we'll both, it'll like, we'll offset each other. We'll both be that way. <clears throat> it's like the COVID episode. I mean, I don't have COVID, I don't think, but. I don't anymore. I tested negative yesterday. It's the fall general sickness episode of DIST. Everyone. DIST, take- brought to you by COVID. <laughs> by Paxlovid. I think I might name my <laughs> child Paxlovid. <laughs> Call him or her Paxi. Pax, yeah. It's like peace and also Pax. a miracle drug. Dairy and shrimp boats and whiskey and wine. Cantaloupes, apples, oysters, and swine. <laughs> We're not using that. <laughs> Maybe it's only because our voices are hoarse. Otherwise, we would definitely use it. Okay. Oh, 100%. <laughs> we are Beyonce. Wish it was fried chicken. <laughs> KFC, if you're out there, still looking for a sponsor. I got another weird, we got another weird one. I think it was from Netflix. Oh. I think it said, I think it was a fake one from Netflix. Anyway, uh, continue. Continue. Netflix with two X's or something. Okay. <laughs> Netflix, like <laughs> CK. I love Total Wine, by the way. The store or the case? <laughs> the store. Oh. I don't David Trone, who's a representative now, started it. Where was I? Oh, so, oh, uh, I'm next. But I didn't. Right? But I need to re-say Barry in a non-creepy. Oh yeah, creepy Barry. Way. <laughs> 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 Thanks for listening to Dist. Please subscribe wherever you. They're they're having a party up there. Three-year-old stampede. <laughs> So send questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes to dist at pacificlegal.org because we never check the inbox. (laughs) (laughs) I do. (laughs) I got to check for KFC. (laughs) Uh, uh.